Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. The city changing its vaccination strategy. Six nations weighing in on residential schools. China doesn't want anybody else investigating COVID-19. What is happening with the Green Party? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Now that we are vaccinating and slowly reopening, what if I don't want to cut my hair or put on my pants? No shirt, no shoes, no problem? Is that okay? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There we go. No shirt, no shoes, no service. Does that still apply? Is that still fair in a post-COVID-19 world? Can we say that? I mean, you know, I got a mask. As long as I got a mask, what do I need a shirt and shoes for, really? Uh, good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, or pants for that matter. Got some new trackies. Uh <laughs> Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Uh, send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, this, uh, I presume, is good news in the sense that Hamilton is winding down its large-scale vaccination clinics. Uh, boy, oh boy, it seems like it's been a long time since we've got to say that. Let's bring in Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Response for the City of Hamilton, co-recipient of the Citizen of the Year Award, and he is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well, and it's uh, great to be with you, Scott. Thanks. And I have to congratulate you. As always happens, when one excels, uh, one gets offers, and good for you. Congratulations on your uh, next career move and such, uh, and it is well-deserved. All the best to you. Well, thanks very much. Exciting opportunity. <laughs> Love the sound effects, too. There you, there you go. go. <laughs> okay, Paul, so uh, we're calling you in regard to the winding down of large-scale vaccination clinics. Is this a good news story? Uh, it's a it's a good news story in terms of uh, the fact that we're shifting to where we need to go to get to that last push around vaccines, and that's that mass vaccination sites will become less effective and efficient around this, and we need to go to more targeted, uh, smaller-scale clinics. So if people feel this is a wrapping up of vaccination because we've reached targets, the answer to that is no. Uh, this is clearly about finding better ways to use the uh, the human resources, but also use our our uh, locational resources to get to where the the need is most. As as you recall, we've had this conversation last. Those mass vaccination clinics were about large volumes of people moving through, and uh, the good news is is that they did exactly what we wanted them to do. First at Hamilton Health Sciences, and first last December, opening up to really make sure we protected our healthcare workers and those who work in long term care. And then, of course, St. Joe's opened up and then First Ontario Centre. And they've all been about large volumes. The shift will be to smaller centres, to more geographically located centres. So in no way are we stopping our push for a vaccination because, as you know, Scott, we're not there yet. We uh, do not have the type of coverage, uh, particularly with full vaccination, that we need as a community. So the push is still on. It'll just look a little different as we go forward. So uh, perhaps I was a little too optimistic there at the beginning. This is more about changing the template to a more targeted approach as opposed to where we were, uh, I guess, a couple of months ago, which is, as you mentioned, trying to get as many uh, vaccinated as we possibly can. If uh, we've done that, then we need to have a more surgical approach to all of this as opposed to using the staff for a mass clinic that necessarily isn't as efficient anymore. It is, and it's also, you know, the beginning of the transition to a sustainable model. I mean, we were never going to have a first Ontario centre offering vaccines for for years to come. uh, This was about that large volume of people through. And, you know, what we have in Hamilton now is over 100 pharmacies that are part of a vaccine program. Uh, We have two, uh, you know, primary care, as we say, or family physician-led clinics that happen. We have lots of mobile and pop-up clinics that occur um, in in many parts of the community, and, and that's the work that will continue but uh, those mass vaccination sites, not only do they have a large volume, and now that that volume is sort of trickling down a little bit, they don't become as efficient. They also take a lot of staff, and those staff can be better redeployed to do other things as we continue the vaccine push. So it's, it, it is, you know, Scott, a logistical shift in, in the pattern that we need to have and, and really signals that uh, we're getting to that, that period of a very much a targeted approaches 
uh, smaller clinics, but also more sustainable clinics. And you also see uh, what's happened the last couple of weeks, public health, uh, having walk-ins everywhere. So you can now walk in or book, whichever your preference is, uh, mm-hmm. to receive the vaccine. And again, there was a time where we told people, do not come to these clinics. Don't walk yeah. up. We, you know, yeah. You'll get turned away if you walk up. Well, now the message, of course, is we have ample supply of vaccine. Come, even if you just decide you get up today and you say, okay, hey, today I've decided it's time to get the vaccine, uh, you can walk into the clinics. And that's good news as well. It's all about flexibility and allowing people to get access to uh, the vaccines that are so critically important to wind down this pandemic. So uh, I think we got over 80% with one dose uh, or close to it and almost 60% with the second dose. Obviously, obviously this is a more uh, targeted approach. What is your challenge moving forward? Obviously, before it was supply and demand and making sure you could get as many jabbed as you possibly could. Uh, Now, obviously, uh, perhaps dealing with hesitancy and in those that don't have access. Uh, How do you go about that? How do you how do you surgically pinpoint where you go well let's see in our public health unit is is on a daily basis trying to find the best ways to do that and and you're right it's it's i would say two things one is there is going to be a group of people uh, that that it's vaccine hesitancy because we see that with all vaccines so we know that there's a group that, that there's a bit of hesitancy there but the other side is there's still a group uh, where we haven't maybe quite nailed it in terms of how they can access readily access uh, uh, the vaccine itself. And that uh, may be because of where they live. It may be because of both their life circumstances. It may be because of other fears and anxieties that they have. So I think you're seeing now us try any way that we can. Uh, and, and the walk-in is a great example of that. If people are finding it hard to schedule the time in, they may not know that from a work perspective or a, uh, a home situation perspective. They now have the option just to show up and that's a big thing. If you can just show up, then maybe it's a little easier to come get the vaccine than if you had to plan and book and hold on to an appointment. So all of those things have been a part of the strategy that uh, is, is emerging. And public health, of course, for uh, for months now has been working with community organizations to also try and find ways of getting vaccine into parts of our community where there is uh, a barrier to access that we need to solve. And it is going to continue to evolve. And we are constantly... I, talk to Dr. Richardson uh, all the time, and, and they just continue to look for any and all options, uh, as the province does as well. And you heard the, the chief medical officer of health talk about, you know, hopefully we can keep going with the vaccine as it is, but you've seen other provinces use incentives and things like that. Uh, it'll be about trying everything we can to get that vaccination rate up as high as possible. Uh, obviously, vaccine for this is not mandatory in Canada, although I do believe it is for healthcare worker, uh, healthcare workers in long-term care. Uh, is a passport or a certificate of some sort needed here, do you think, Paul? Or is that piece of paper, or would many of us have just taken a picture of it in that code on your phone enough? So, you know, I, I think the question about that is still remains to be seen because if we can continue to get the vaccination rates up just naturally to the level we need to, you know, the logistics and the, and the challenges and the quite frankly, the legal elements of it, it's not an easy thing. I think people feel that a vaccine passport would be pretty, pretty easy. Just create an app, download this and away you go. It's not that simple. We know that Scott. And, and so I think that the, the goal is to wait and see how well we can do in vaccination overall. And if we maybe don't need it because our vaccination rate get to where they need to go, then, then all the better. What you are seeing, though, is a very strong conversation that in certain parts of our of our community, uh, there may need to be a, a, a different approach. Long-term care is a good example. While not mandatory, uh, it is mandatory that people declare to their employer at whatever long-term care facility they are, whether they've had the vaccine or not. Oh, so um, it's not mandatory in long-term care, but it has it to is, be it has to be yes. declared. You have to be declared. Right. You then have to either, if you have not been vaccinated, you then have to either produce medical uh, documentation that says you right. cannot be vaccinated because that exists for a few. Or the other piece is you are then, uh, if you still have not been vaccinated, uh, you must be enrolled in an educational program, uh, which will, again, talk to people with real with real information from credible sources about the importance of vaccination. And this is the hope that, that many of them will will get the right information to make the choice. So there really isn't a part of our community that is fully mandated that you must. 
Um, there is talk, of course, of some of that happening, and we'll see where it goes. But right now, I think it is still about getting people the right information so they can make an informed choice. And the rates of vaccination coverage uh, amongst staff in long-term care, for instance, uh, is really high. And so you can see that when people get good information and they understand the risk and the role that they play, uh, that they, they do take the vaccination. But it's still not 100%. And obviously, our goal would be to be as close to that as possible. Obviously, we're seeing uh, uh, stats in the United States and the UK uh, where we're, we're, they're starting to see an uptick there. Uh, it, how much of a concern is that for you here, Paul, or is the fact that we have so many vaccinated uh, a good sign we're not going to, to hit a fourth wave? W- what are your thoughts or what can we learn from other places in the world? Well, we can learn that the case counts are, are likely to go up, and, and uh, I, I think everybody's predicting there will be some level of increase as more things open up. And, of course, the big piece that will open up in, in uh, the not-too-distant future will be will be educational in, uh, institutions, both post-secondary and, and the school system. So then we have a real, um, you know, a, an additional piece that we'll have to watch. And then, of course, we'll get into the colder weather and more people will go inside and spend time inside. So it's no doubt we don't have enough people vaccinated right now. Uh, there are still large, large numbers of people unvaccinated that uh, you're going to see the transmission of this virus because the virus doesn't disappear when we hit some magical 75% mark or something like that. It's still there. So I think we're going to see more cases. Uh, the hope is obviously that the vaccination rates uh, will temper the, the size of that, but also more importantly, temper the impact of that. Less hospitalizations and obviously less death. So that's good from a healthcare resource perspective. Uh, Then the other side is we're just going to have to continue to do some of the measures that protect ourselves from that spread and, and, uh, you know, how people behave will will determine some of it. And then how people respond to vaccinations will will be the other determining factor. So there's no, you know, there's no path that says we have to have a brutal fourth wave. Uh, But but that's going to be determined by two things. One is the slowdown of vaccinations, does that continue or can we can we get that momentum going again? And then the second piece is, will people follow some of the basic public health measures uh, to protect themselves in situations where there may be unvaccinated people um, amongst them? Uh, there's new, I'm just getting email in here. I'm, I'm trying to read to you here, Paul, or read and talk to you at the same time. But uh, there uh, chatter, new studies coming out about uh, how effective two doses of this vaccine are against the new variants. And that has been positive. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, everything I read and, and certainly listening to the experts, I'm no expert, but what I hear and what I read and what I uh, can gather is that uh, the real path forward here is full vaccination. Uh, so, again, that goes into the pattern of uh, for those who haven't received their second dose, uh, look into, you know, whether you can shorten your second dose and whether you're eligible for that. Um, in some cases, it's only 28 days now. In some cases, it's that 8 to 12 week piece, depending on what your first dose was. But do it as quick as possible is, is the advice that's coming out. And many people are still sticking with their original second dose date, which was set at a time where there was uh, vaccine supply issues. And so we were trying to make sure people got more first dose. So if you can accelerate that up, certainly the encouragement is to accelerate that up because uh, the, the evidence supports, particularly with the Delta variant, that it's uh, pretty, pretty important you are fully vaccinated, which uh, right now with the vaccines we have on the market means you need those second doses. Uh, here's an interesting question, Paul, and then I'll let you go about the third dose. Uh, could you ask one of your guests if it's possible to get a third shot so I have two of the same because of restrictions for people that got two different vaccines? I've had a Pfizer for the first and a Moderna for the second. That would, wouldn't matter, would it, Paul? You don't need a third because well, of that, I do you? I think where the, the, the uh, listener may be going is the fact that uh, certain countries and certain places, you they don't recognize full vaccination right. as being a mixture of, of vaccines, uh, whereas right. in Canada that has been, and in Ontario, it's been put forward that that is, is perfectly safe and an effective way to do it. So from the standpoint of can I get something that shows that I had two doses of, of let's just say, Pfizer, so that that way, uh, if I go somewhere, they see two doses mm. of Pfizer. Um, you know, obviously, I, it's it's there is no call for people to come for a third dose of something uh, no. at the moment. And I think more of what's happening is at the policy level, uh, there's trying to be some consistency among countries, consistency among provinces to say uh, that you are fully vaccinated if you have this in place. 
And it's uh, this is the complicating factor, and it's why these passports are are more than just an easy app to download. Is that there's a whole bunch of things that go into, yeah. you know, how you would prove that you're fully vaccinated, because in some cases. Uh, places don't recognize uh, vaccines or currently don't and are thinking about how they're going to do it. And some don't recognize the mixing of vaccines, although our science uh, tables here in Ontario have, have said that this is a perfectly acceptable and, and uh, produces a good coverage rate, too. So, Scott, here's where we're headed, uh, the complications of it. And yeah. then, of course, uh, we won't have time to discuss it today. But, uh, you know, this whole outstanding question of will there be boosters in the future and the need yeah. for for that and and um, you know those are the things that will come but for now i'd just like to leave with with a real focus message on if you haven't received your second dose check how fast you can get it let's go if you haven't received vaccine at all uh, talk to your healthcare providers get clarity and know that we are being incredibly flexible walk in just show up and we will uh, make sure that you get the a vaccine and get on this path to uh, you know having some protection against uh, particularly this delta variant Paul Johnson with us, Director of the Emergency Response for the City of Hamilton, co-recipient of the Citizen of the Year Award, along with Dr. Richardson. Paul, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Hopefully we'll chat again before you take off. You bet. I'd like that, Scott. Thanks very much. Here comes the commentary. You may have seen this on social media. It reads, I am sick of COVID-19. I am sick of culture versus culture. I am sick of race versus race. I'm sick of liberals versus conservatives. I'm sick of gay versus straight. I'm really sick of the media. I'm sick of the language being used and plastered all over social media. I'm sick of the people who are out there jumping on the bandwagon because it's fashionable. I'm sick of blaming the world for the sins of a few. We are one race, the human race. You want to support Justin Trudeau? You do it. It's your choice. You want to support Aaron O'Toole? Fine. It's also your choice. You want to believe in God? It's okay. Believe in your God. But how about being mature enough to be able to deal with the fact that everyone doesn't have the exact same mindset as you? Having our own minds is what makes us all individuals and beautiful. If you can't handle that fact, I'm sorry. I don't have to agree with everything you believe in. However, you will still be my friend. So be a decent human being. Love one another. Be kind. Be humble. Be thankful. Help a stranger and do a good deed. You don't have to agree with any of this. And that's okay, too. It's your choice. But take care. Stay well. And for goodness sakes, find a way to stay happy. Hard to disagree. I'm Scott Thompson. The story in regard to residential schools in this country got a little closer to home yesterday when the Six Nations of the Grand River's elected chief uh, demanded that a search for potential unmarked graves at a former residential school in Brantford be treated as a criminal investigation. Uh, Mark Hill, speaking on behalf of survivors, is suggesting that the probe of the former Mohawk Institute residential school should take the shape of a multi-jurisdictional uh, police task force. Uh, we have... Uh, uh, tried to uh, reach out to uh, Six Nations to get a spokesperson and have been unable to reach them at this time. Uh, let's bring in Patricia Doyle Bedwell, Native Studies instructor with Dalhousie University and is with us now. Patricia, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. I am well. Thank you, Scott, for having me. Uh, now that we are, uh, well, obviously it started with Kamloops and, and, and slowly from there, uh, we are yeah. seeing more and more, as we know, uh, under, I guess it's about 150 residential schools across the country, there's the potential to discover, uh, these bodies. Uh, how has this mobilized, uh, other, uh, communities to start their own investigation, to demand their own investigation? Well, I think that it's mobilized all the communities because there's there's been so many residential schools in Canada and every community. I know that in Nova Scotia, there's an uh, investigation happening at the Shuby Residential School um, because it made people start thinking. And then if you look at the uh, stories of the survivors when they've talked about, you know, children disappearing and not knowing where they went um, or if they died, where did they go? how did they die, that all of those questions um, are starting to be paramount and people are asking those questions and they're starting these investigations. And I think that it's very important to do so. 
And, of course, as we talked about before, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission also identified maybe up to four to 5,000 kids that died. And, um, you know, and Justice Sinclair said that maybe up to 20,000 kids. So we need to do this investigation. Every community has to be involved in this investigation. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, this particular site? Uh, anything you can add uh, from the Mohawk Institute Residential School site? Uh, it, you know, it, it's it's thought at this point that uh, that there is uh, at least uh, 50 bodies that could be there, 54 yeah. children that died over its 142-year yeah. uh, operation. Is this uh, is there anything unique here to the other compared to the others? I don't think there's something, well, what's unique about all of these investigations is the fact that, you know, <clears throat> the government and the churches have had some role to play in the deaths of these children. And that's becoming very, very clear. And so what's happening in Brantford at Six Nations, I think, is going to be happening at very many communities across Canada. Because, like I said, there's been there were so many residential schools. There were kids that didn't come home. Where did they go? What happened? The survivors have told the story, and I think every community um, has to approach this in a way that respects their own culture and experience. So I'm glad that Brantford is going forward. Six Nations is going forward with this investigation. Uh, Mark Hill, who is, of course, the elected chief, uh, said that mm-hmm. uh, that uh, it should take the shape of a multi-jurisdictional police task force. Uh, as yeah. you mentioned, it, it, it might be different depending on the community. Uh, Mark Hill has is looking for a multi-jurisdictional police task force to take a peek at this. How do you how do you move forward with investigating this? Is this a criminal investigation? Uh, how do you move forward with an investigation? Well, I think that it has to be approached as a criminal investigation because we don't know how these kids died. And we know that some of them may have died from disease, you know, as other people have indicated that maybe, you know, we know that the, you know, Dr. Peter Bryce in the early 1900s said that Canada should be charged with manslaughter because so many kids were brought into the school with disease. That's one aspect. We don't know how many children may have died from abuse or neglect. And I think that the best way to start these investigations is as a criminal investigation. And having, like in Shubenagate, we have forensic specialists and people who are looking for unmarked graves. And uh, I think that's the beginning that we have to look. We have to have it structured in that way in case so that we don't miss any evidence that may be found. When we talked at the beginning of all of this, um, y- y- there was lots of discussion about whether these sites should be disturbed, whether bodies should be exhumed and, and autopsies done and, and such. And, yeah. and, and I guess obviously we've heard uh, positions on both sides of that. But in order to proceed, for example, in, in what Six Nations is looking for, you would have to exhume those bodies yeah. in order to conduct yeah. that investigation. And how then difficult? Do a how forensic investigation? Yeah. So how, how is is that as easy? as it sounds in the sense that no. does the community want exactly because obviously part of the community says yes the other part says no how do you how do you move forward with that well i think that with the community each community has to make that decision on how they want to proceed and i know that there are some people that say we should just leave them rest in peace and there's other people that are saying we need to bring them home and we have to find out what happened to them and it sounds like six nations is um, moving towards bringing the children home, um, exhuming their bodies. And mm-hmm. they'll ha- if they're going to try to do an investigation that's based on criminal law, they're going to have to figure out a way, how did these kids die? They'll have to do some type of forensic investigation. They're going to have to uh, exhume the bodies and uh, determine as near as possible a cause of death. Now, that's going to be very difficult to do if you're on a... If you're only dealing with remains, you're not dealing, you're dealing with bones probably at this point. And the other thing that's going to be hard to do is, um, you know, with criminal law, you know, if you're looking at homicide or manslaughter, usually you need witnesses. And then some of these things happened a long time ago. There may not be witnesses to the actual event of what happened. So it is going to be difficult, but there has to be a way, and I've been thinking a lot about this, there has to be a way that 
the government and the churches, there has to be a way to hold them accountable for what happened. And we need to know what happened. And in my mind, the best way to proceed in that is to do that forensic investigation and exhume those bodies and bury them properly with a name. Um, and um, we need to, and I think having a multi-jurisdictional police task force is a good step. I think that is the way that we need to proceed. And but but it could be likely that each community looks at this uh, differently. Each site will that's be true. treated differently, or should they? Should it be something that's you know national all the way across the country, and and everybody gets the same attention? Well, criminal law is a national thing, right? So it's a national law. So it may be, um, depending on how communities want to proceed, that it becomes more of a national task force, like similar to the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Inquiry, or um, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I know that Justice Sinclair said that they just, you know, they knew that kids had died, but that was outside of the scope of their investigation, so they didn't have the opportunity or the funds to delve into the specifics, so maybe the government has to think about doing a national commission or inquiry um, that is multi-jurisdictional that deals with the provincial police as well as with the RCMP and also the churches and the communities and find out what happened. I mean, that to me, to me, in my own personal opinion, the most burning question is what happened to these kids and who's responsible. And we need to look at that. And And I think that one is, in my own personal opinion, not knowing is so frustrating and sad that we don't know what happened to these kids. And I was thinking about, you know, looking at, you know, what did the survivors say when they spoke to the TRC? What did the survivors say when they spoke to RCAP? Um, how will this affect the common experience payment? Are these kids going to be, are their families going to be compensated for what happened to these kids? Um, what it, you know, so it's like a criminal investigation as well as um, looking at if there's damages that should flow from this, but we're so far from that at this point. But the first step is to, and I think that um, Chief Hill has done the right thing. He has begun a criminal investigation and has asked for a multi-jurisdictional task force to investigate. And I think that's the great first step. We need to know. What happened to these kids? Uh, and then we can determine accountability and responsibility and whether or not we can proceed with any kind of criminal invest um, criminal procedures. Uh, Chief Hill also said uh, that they haven't received any funding from government to do this work moving forward. Um, you know, is is are any of these communities getting funding now to do? Uh, you know, the ground searches, the radar, all that sort of uh, activity that needs to be done to discover these unmarked graves? Well, I know that um, the Prime Minister has offered some funding. It's not going to be enough. That, you know, it's a very expensive process to do all this work. I mean, not only do you need people who are archaeologists and anthropologists, forensic anthropologists, um, DNA specialists, forensic pathologists, to look at all of, of the remains that they get. And then there's going to be need for, um, like, who's going to pay for this multi-jurisdictional investigation process? Somebody has to pay for that. And I think the federal government has a significant responsibility here to pay for those. Because we need to know what happened. We can't, I, I just can't see leaving it and just say, well, we don't need to know what happened. I, I think we need to know what happened. And um, someone and any institution, whether it's the Catholic Church, the you know whatever church was involved, the federal government in particular, they have to be accountable for what happened to those kids because they had the responsibility to take care of them. And you know, so in, that, I mean, they had signed documents that said they had the responsibility to take care of those kids. So if you think about it in a smaller uh Fear, perhaps, like say, okay, you have a family that's taking care of a foster kid, and the foster kid dies, and they and you have the 
the body disappears and you can't find it, people would be wondering what the heck happened to that kid, what, you know, mm. there would be an investigation. The difficult part with this is just, it's so big, right? It's so big. And, but we need to know the ultimate question is what happened and who's responsible. This, uh, you know, you, you were talking about uh, uh, moving forward on this. If we don't do this now, when when do you do this? When right? When do you, you can't do it? you can't put this back. You know, you can't put this. This is you know, you can't go backwards now. It it seems impossible. No. Too much has been discovered to move back. Would That's you agree? Right. And I agree. And I think that they have to start this multi-jurisdictional investigation. There's also an option, you know, it's a, was said by, I think it was one of the lawyers that said, you know, if they don't get any satisfaction at the national level, um, then they'll take this to the UN as a crime against humanity. Right? Is so, it, and genocide. It, is there any way or, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Chief Belgrade and it, to do all of this at once, to get everybody on the same page and, and moving forward with this as opposed to each community kind of doing it on their own? Or is that is that possible? Well, I was thinking that's why I was thinking maybe some type of national investigation, but every community has to be represented. That's what's going to be difficult. And um as they said, for the Six Nations, it has to be trauma-informed if it's led by the survivors. They have to be able to, there needs to be support in helping them go through this process. That's a lot of uh, to place on a survivor, but from what I've read and what I've heard and people I've talked to, they are more than willing to go forward and pursue this, but there also needs to be, I mean, the survivors that have agreed to pursue it. Um, there needs to be support for them in this process. So that's why they called for a trauma-informed process, because it's going to be very difficult. It's going to bring up memories. It's going to bring up bad experiences. It's going to, you know, people are going to have to be supported through that process. And so I think that it's very important that each community, like I said, deals with that through their own cultural, religious, spiritual process and also that the government the federal government um, take responsibility to um, fund a process that investigates all of these unmarked graves and to find more if they're there and they need to do that you know the truth and reconciliation commission i mean they traveled all over canada and they talked to survivors and families of survivors all across canada so i don't think that um, we can ignore what the survivors told us, and maybe there has to be a way to bring those stories forward. I'm not sure. I've been thinking about this process, but I'm also very aware that each community has to have their own, they have to have control over this in the way that they need to move forward. And just like with the Shubenagadee Residential School, where there's Mi'kmaq people working on that site, and there's um, different universities that are working with them and being led by the community. So I think that is something that we have to really think about. And how the process on how to do that, maybe we need another commission, like the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Inquiry. Maybe we need... You know, and the other thing I'm interested in. How can there be anything less? How how can there be anything less than that when you think of it? When you think of the impact, because this has had more impact than that has. So, like, how can you for one and not the other? It doesn't make sense. Well, I think that they need to look at that process of investigation. Are they going to connect with the local communities? Is there going to be a national process? Is the federal government going to fund this? How are they going to move forward? And we need to know. We need to know what happened to these kids. I mean, that's the ultimate question, and who's ultimately responsible. And I think uh, Chief, we need to do something at that at that level, at the national level. Uh, Chief and Hill also expressed. Oh, go ahead. Chief Hill also display, uh, expressed displeasure with the fact that the prime minister was recently in Hamilton and didn't go up there, which was you know like a half an hour away. Right. Are you concerned as we? It appears we're heading into an election, and it seems every day. Um, you know, there's another announcement from the Prime Minister that this is going to get lost. I'm always scared, <clears throat> sorry, that anything that has to do with Indigenous issues gets lost. I'm always concerned about that. And 
I am really concerned that, you know, I think if we're going into election, I think that, you know, the, the Liberal Party, the NDP, the conservatives, they have to make this a significant part of their platform that they're going to help and support us in finding out what happened, because they're ultimately responsible. The federal government is ultimately responsible, along with the churches. Of course, maybe they don't want to investigate themselves, but, um, you know, to the point where it leads to criminal charges or perhaps an international genocide um, process, but it has to happen. And, you know, I think that it would have been nice if the prime minister had gone to the school. You know, we've had no, um, even in Nova Scotia, we haven't had any... uh, politicians make the track to Shubenagadi, even though it's only 45 minutes outside of Halifax. So I think maybe they're hoping it goes away, like we'll forget about it, but we're not, I mean, we're not going to forget about it. My concern is that the the greater public will get, I don't want to say it's not immune, but... Um, yeah, kind of numb to the messages as yeah. we discover more and more of these. Right. And but we can't forget those kids and they're wanting to come home and we need to investigate why they didn't come home. And whatever it takes to make that happen, the government has to do that. And if, you know, if as indigenous people and other allies want to make this an election issue, then even better. Patricia Doyle Bedwell with us, Native Studies instructor with Dalhousie University, uh, Six Nations of the Grand River, uh, talking about their own investigation uh, beneath their own residential school. We have reached out to them and have yet to hear back, but hopefully we'll get them on tomorrow. Patricia, thanks for the time. Be well. We'll be following this. No problem. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, Reuters is reporting that China rejected a World Health Organization plan. Uh, this was on Thursday for a second phase of an investigation into the origins of COVID-19, which includes the hypothesis it could have escaped from a Chinese laboratory. Uh, the WHO this month proposed a second phase of studies into the origins of the coronavirus in China, including audits of laboratories and markets in the city of Wuhan, calling for transparency from authorities. Uh, however, uh, China says we will not accept such an such an origins tracing plan as uh, as it is in some aspects disregards common sense and defies science, said their minister of national uh, health. Uh, they were taken back when if they first read the WHO plan because it lists the hypothesis that a Chinese violation of a laboratory protocol had caused uh, the the uh, virus to leak uh, during this research. So uh, it appears that China does not want to continue on uh, with any second phase of this uh, investigation. After uh, the first investigation, um, they said there was a lot of unanswered questions due to lack of transparency. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, professor of political science, Carleton University. He's with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thank you, and to you. No, I'm fine. It's a glorious day in Ottawa, summer 2021. You gotta like it. It's better than the last one, that's for sure. Um, has the World Health Organization changed its tune in China? Maybe ma- many were saying at the initial stages, especially of this investigation, uh, that they weren't really uh, pushing hard enough. Uh, what is different now? The <laughs> they did react to that initial criticism. The initial criticism was. Uh, raised particularly by the Trump administration, that uh, the WHO and particularly its leader were soft on China because he got his position due to Chinese influence, proper influence in the WHO selection process. But uh, the U.S. had rejected at that time under Trump that uh, administration that you know nothing. Nothing uh, to be seen here, according to WHO. So the WHO went back, I think, in January and did a, another survey, and they, they came out with a report apparently saying, well, it's unlikely, but we can't fully rule it out. We need more information. We're coming back for more information, in part because, uh, as that same article points out, that the Wuhan lab, the virology lab, had taken its gene sequence uh, and sample database offline so that they wondered about that and they did that in 2019 just as they 
pandemic was getting underway. So there, there were still some questions to be answered, according to the WHO, and here's where we are. Will they get information now that they didn't get the first time? Uh, many think that the longer this goes on, the harder it gets. Yes, there's real concern that because the initial lack of transparency, which was quite noteworthy, that is, it was noted by the United States government and others around the world, the original lack of transparency meant that a lot of questions were raised, and since time has gone on, and remember, there was, there was a lot of comment that the person who originally blew the whistle on, you know, we found something, was, was closed off, disappeared initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original person who blew the whistle was a doctor there who uh, who died of the COVID crisis after raising concerns. But the Chinese really created a narrative and pushed it very successfully, saying, we know there's another narrative out there that, you know, that somehow we're responsible. But we were very responsible We, in the sense that we took it very seriously. We put the genome on the web immediately. Uh, we cooperated. Sure, we let people in, and maybe a little later, and maybe the lab was scrubbed. But no, we've we behaved in an exemplary fashion. And what they're saying now is, we have been investigated already. So if the WHO or others want to do further investigation, they should look other places where they might find that have not been investigated. Does China not have any interest in answering that question uh, either? Because cause obviously they're saying, uh, whatever you guys are saying, it's not true, uh, it's not us. Uh, well, then who... And are they not as interested in finding out the origins of this as everybody else? So if it was Italy, if it was the U.S., why aren't they going after them? Why aren't they coming out with an investigation on all this? Well, they're suggesting that the WHO and anybody else who's curious should go go someplace else. And they did mention... But they're not curious as to the origins of it? Well, they're, uh, they're saying, you know, if, if there's still ongoing investigations... Uh, go someplace else we've been investigated. Mm. Uh, they are not taking a leading role in, in saying, sure, let's go around the world. But if they they are now pressing very hard through their official organs and related organs, saying, you know where you should really look? is Fort Detrick in the United States, in Maryland, because that's where this very deadly pathogen kind of research was going on. And they they didn't bring this out, by the way, <laughs> um, but they, they alluded to the fact that there might be an issue there. And it turns out, indeed, there has been an issue there. there was, it was the uh, earliest and, and most central component of U.S. research in that particular area. It got closed down in 2019 by the CDC uh, because they were concerned about its safety protocols. So the, if the Chinese really wanted to pursue this further, they've got private netizens have got 7 million signatures immediately saying, don't look at us, look at Fort Detrick. So they're saying, don't look here, look someplace else. There's nothing to see here. We were cooperative. Now, you know, move on. And so we just shrug and say, so we still don't know where it came from. And and again, I, I can't see them being happy with that. Uh, they would be interested in its origins just like any other country would. Um, has So has, Elliot, has China successfully uh, convinced uh, the world that um, nothing to see here? They've not. The uh, original... Have they successfully was, covered the pandemic up? Well, that's, that's two different questions. <laughs> so they, they were saying, uh, initially they were saying, look, we worked very transparent, there's been investigations, uh, so there's nothing to see here, move on. But what brought this back was after the Trump administration had made a big um, political point of without any evidence at all at that point of saying, you know, it didn't start here. It's not our fault. It was an import from Wuhan and the China virus. You know, the politicization initially then meant that anybody who said, you know, there might be something to this, we really have to go back yeah. and take a look, got discredited. But what changed all this, uh, What where we are now is because a new president came to power, Joe Biden came to power, and he said, I've called, uh, I've taken a look at this now. And my intelligence agencies have been asked to look at it. They gave me a report, and it was a mixed report. Uh, some said, no, there was nothing. It, it really, all the evidence says that it was an animal market. Just as preceding types of infections like this have been out of China, it came out of wet markets and, and spread to humans, from animals to humans, maybe bats were involved. Uh, 
but then, apparently, if you read carefully, uh, Joe Biden said, I, some, of my, some of my intelligence agencies aren't so sure. They can't reach that conclusion. I'm giving everybody 90 days, his people, 90 days, which will yeah. come up in August sometime, uh, to really come up with as good an answer as we can get. Whether they can, in fact, come up with another, whether it's possible at this stage to come up with a, a satisfactory answer is another issue. But um, the fact that the new president has said, there's something to see here, let's go take a look. WHO had this preliminary report. Now they subsequently are saying, yes, let's go take a closer look. So uh, China has not yet successfully uh, covered this pandemic up. Well, they're saying there was nothing to cover up. So yeah. it's, it's very interesting. I've been reading their, their press a bit on this. They're saying, why are we even asking these questions? It's already asked and answered, basically. Uh, we, we may not know. What we do know is that the Chinese were not transparent, that there were questions raised about, by people who then were, were silenced or disappeared for a while, that uh, the initial whistleblower who said, look, I found something, actually died of covid and this was not widely circulated. So a lack of initial transparency, and now time has gone on, means that it's going to be very difficult to either, on the one hand, really clear China of, of any you know, behavior which should have been you know, in, investigated. Uh, it's very hard now to go back and say, well, we should have, but we didn't, and uh, time will move on. And China really has basically won their narrative by saying we were transparent, we put the genome out on the web, we, you know, we cooperate in global uh, investigations, uh, and look how well we've done. There is no, we've conquered this virus, and so we know what we're doing. It's too bad that other types of political systems, democracies, can't be as effective as ours. We have a superior way of dealing with issues. Look how well we're doing, and they, their economy is back. And because their economy is back, people are saying, well, Boy, we better we better shift our focus now uh, to we, how do we recover economically from the pandemic globally and the role of China in that. China also said that the, the reasons for not investigating this any further were privacy concerns. Yes, uh, they, whose privacy concerns? Since were, when do they? Since when does the Chinese Communist Party think about <laughs> care about that? Oh, they really care about it when it comes to saying you can't look at this. They're saying the. The database. I meant other people. I guess other people's rights. I meant, but yeah. yeah they, go ahead. They, finish your sentence. They were saying uh, we we had to take this uh, this database offline in 2019 because individuals were named, and now people are saying, you know, there were three people, uh, three individuals uh, who uh, who really should be looked at because we think they these are outsiders saying there there are three individuals in particular who might have caught the virus or said had information about the virus and china has responded oh yeah give us their names you don't have the names therefore you and, and uh, anybody else's names we have to keep private uh, we, and they were worried about hi- cyber hacking they said we had to take this database offline because this database might have been hacked and it had all this privacy information on it so where does this this latest revelation go from here, Elliot? Uh, obviously, Biden's putting pressure on the World Health Organization to continue uh, a second phase of this investigation. Uh, obviously, the Chinese have said no. What happens now? How does this move forward? We'll have to see at a, at a tactical, practical level who gets in to look at what and when and if. And that's really at this minute up in the air. But we also need to step back a bit, as always, a half a step, and say, well, what's the bigger picture here? And the bigger picture here is the United States has really sharpened its critique of China in a very surprising way, given that we thought, you know, all this was just Donald Trump. But no, Joe Biden has really upped the game in terms of China, having just now um, (laughs) led an international effort to condemn China over cyber hacking. Over Microsoft, right? Yeah, everybody's favorite company, Microsoft. So the uh, they're saying officially are saying that uh, we accuse the Chinese. There was just an outstanding quote. I can't lay hands on it uh, at the second, but look up Tony Blinken's quote saying we basically we accuse the state security agency of being the hackers behind that is a state agency behind a global cyber. Uh, cyber hack 
and we, we think this shouldn't happen, and rallied allies. So NATO and Japan uh, and the EU all signed on to this, and that means Canada also has signed on to a public ac- accusation against China over cyber hacking, and at the same time uh, are, um, are saying to China that, you know, in our case, <laughs> we still have those hostages, 955 days now, right? So mm. uh, there's real concern that Canada is playing its role in joining an internationally an international consensus which is growing, led by the U.S. in an official capacity, charging China with, um, with misbehavior. Uh, in this case, they're actually, as they did earlier in, my, in a case, going back to that genome that was released, <laughs> uh, the, then China was accused of cyber hacking, uh, the uh, <laughs> cyber hacking Moderna to yeah. gain access to what was done with that genome. So the, the elevation of China into more of a, um, uh, an international pariah state by an alliance, a broad-based alliance of democracies, I think that's the bigger story here. So what do you see happening at the end of this 90 days in August once Biden gets the information that he's looking for? Well, we don't know what he'll what will be told to him or what yeah. he will choose to release. We don't know either of those. My guess is that it's going to be very hard to come to any conclusion after after the original lack of transparency and the number of days that have gone by, the months that have gone by. Uh, it's going to be very hard to, to come up with something. Uh, the preponderance of evidence still seems to be that this was released, uh, in, not released from a lab, but it was in the wild because it fits the earlier pattern of this kind of uh, pandemic. Uh, at the end of the day, has China done anything to keep its food chain free of contamination if it's not from a lab? In terms of this, of the virus? Yes. Because there's other issues about contamination in China of their food chain, yeah. uh, other than the pandemic. They, they've had a, issues of safety. Uh, if, I would put it this way. I would certainly still go to my local big box store and buy something if it happened to be made in China okay, but I wouldn't buy a food product from China Yeah, <laughs> based on what we've known in the past. In terms of um, there's nothing I've seen whatsoever that suggests that there's concerns internally that there's a, a runaway from a lab virus that's gotten out into the, into the Chinese population. So have they done anything to prevent the spread in wet food markets? That I don't know either. I think they, it's a very good question, and I suspect there's an answer that could be dug out if you, if you can dig more deeply into Chinese sources. I suspect they are going to take a closer look because it's certainly to their own population's advantage to stop the exactly. pandemic. So my guess is there will be some, some action taken there. Elliot Tepper with us, political science, uh, Carleton University. Uh, the government of China is rejecting the World Health Organization's plan for a second phase into the investigation of the origins of COVID-19. Elliot, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And to you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's talk politics here in Canada. It appears that we are very, very close on the cusp of a federal election. Uh, we're certainly seeing uh, the prime minister and uh, ministers and such uh, pretty much on a daily basis uh, announcing some sort of program, announcing some sort of, of campaign promise, although the election itself has not been called at this point. Uh, and while others uh, are trying to gear up for it, the Green Party seems to be uh, sh- shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, you remember last week we were talking about how all of a sudden uh, party members were questioning Annamie Paul, the Green Party leader, and uh, non-confidence in her and, and possibly ousting her, holding back money for her election campaign in this, again, as we're talking about a federal election. Then, of course, it all seemed to go away uh, and nothing to see here, and then, boom, we find out that uh, this is all in court. So let's bring in Richard Brennan, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, has covered Queen Par- uh, Queen's Park and Parliament Hill and is with us now. Richard, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
Yeah, Scott, Scott, I'm just in holiday mode here. So. <laughs> no, hey, I totally understand, and we really appreciate you coming on when you're in holiday mode. We appreciate that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I have not in all my years seen such a suicide mission as this one. What has happened here? Because, you know, obviously we'd heard that there was some non-confidence in the leadership, and then there seemed to be an about-face, nothing to see here, all is good, and then we find out it's in court. Uh, what is going uh, on it, here? It, it Well, it's just nuts. I don't know other way, what, how other to describe it. It's just, it's just insane what they're doing here. I mean, it's, the, it's, it's you know, they're lighting the fire and they're throwing gasoline on it at the same time. They're treating her so shabbily, I can't believe it. I've never seen a leader. I, you know, despite, and I've seen liberal leaders that people want out and, and, and get rid of overnight, but nothing like this. This is nuts. Why this close to election, a, a party would try to oust their leader, not only oust their leader, shape it so she can't, she hasn't, won't have any money to run in her riding. I mean, it's, it's hateful. That's about the only thing, way I could describe it. Uh, it seemed at one point this was a star candidate that was going to take this party to the next level beyond Elizabeth May. What happened here? I mean, it, it appears that this party is having its, a hard time deciphering its policy beyond the environment. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, it's been, in, in a way, it's been a one-trick pony. But to their credit, I mean, the Green Party has been gaining momentum and has been gaining support. And it's bigger, very bigger now than just a, a party that's concerned with the environment. But to watch this is like watching a train wreck. You can't take your eyes off it. It's 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 so wild, you know, to think that they again the election is you know probably the end of the summer, and they're trying to torch their leader. How it's gotten to this point, I don't think anybody really knows, quite frankly, because we're not getting the real story here. Do they do they just hate her so much that they can't abide having her or is there something bigger at place here and i'm talking you know uh, some racial overtones because it certainly if it isn't there it certainly smacks of it uh well yeah i would agree with that because it certainly seems that she is a star candidate she's bright uh you know she knows what's going on she's fluently bilingual um, I mean, she she certainly does seem to be a, a star candidate. So what happened? And where is Elizabeth May on all of this? Well, I, I think Elizabeth May has hung her out to dry, quite frankly. That's the opinion I get. She's not saying anything. You know, I'm, you know, leaders, former leaders often just play hands off. But this is not a time to play hands off. This is a time to, you know, to get, have cooler heads and, Somebody like like Elizabeth May to come in and say, hold it now. What you're doing is not just going to get rid of the uh, the leader. You're going to destroy the party. And that's uh, what you're talking about now. Annamie Paul was on a uh, had a news conference this morning, opening up her campaign office on a very positive note. Again, uh, seemed like a very very strong candidate, and and you know blew off comments about this uh, leadership uh, situation, saying that it's a small group within the party, uh, a small group within the council, and their terms expire soon, and they'll be gone. Uh, it seems that she's downplaying all of this. Is is what she is saying is accurate? Accurate in the sense that you know there's a few there's a few people here that are against her, and their terms are retiring, and then their their history. There's an, a, a new um, you know a, a new council coming in. Well, that may be the case, but this council is going to burn the house down as they're walking away. Yeah. Uh, she you know she's putting on a brave face, and you know and God bless her for that. I mean you have to, but. You, you know, she is in a position where she she doesn't have the support of her party. And who is going to, like, what voter, you may support her, but what voter is going to throw their ticket behind a, a party that is in such disarray? It, it couldn't be a worse time, Scott. It just, it just, it's beyond the pale, quite frankly. How does this affect the opposition, other parties? How does this specifically uh, the NDP and the Liberals? I think all the parties are looking at this and going, Christ, we thought we were bad. Yeah. You know, I thought we, we thought we had our, you know, our, we're, once in a while would uh, be so confused we're stabbing each other in the chest, but nothing like this.
this this is this is set back all the parties on their heels and going, holy mackerel, what's going on here? I mean, this is brutal. That's the only way to describe it. And I, I feel I've Paul, I feel sorry for her. I mean, I don't care if she's a, you know a headstrong person. So be it. You you get what you get. You voted her in, and you you know you you dance with the one you brung, and that's. In this case, she's the leader, and you at least have to support her for this election. If you if you want to have some kind of inquest after after the election's done, by all means. But this is not the time to start, you know, start to uh, uh, disembowel the party. Uh, the Green Party obviously can be credited with bringing environmental issues into the forefront uh, over the last decade or two. That being said, is the Green Party still relevant in Canada? And, and you know, I'm talking about the federal party here specifically because it seems the provincial parties uh, have their act together a little bit better. But uh, is it still relevant considering that most uh, po- all political parties now have some sort of green platform and, well, and, yeah. and moving forward with that? So, you know, beyond beyond the environment where do the greens stand is is it still relevant as a party absolutely because the greens actually walk the walk they don't just talk about what they're going to do with the environment they have they have you know uh, plans and and programs to deal with environmental issues where where the you know, i mean they can't implement a lot of them because they're not the government but they can put they can put pressure on the government to do the things that they want to get pushed through. I think it would be a shame to get rid of the Green Party for, for it to just you know crumble and, and blow away. And, but on the other hand, I can't believe Paul's run, running in that riding. The Liberals have held it since yeah. 1997, Toronto Center. They've held it since 1997. Instead of finding a riding where you know you've got a pretty good chance, be it Guelph or out in BC or wherever it might be, you've got to get back in the house. I mean, it's, it, it, if they're angry at her for that, I can understand that much because it doesn't make sense for her to run in that riding because she hasn't got a hope in Hades. Uh, you talked about, you used the phrase one-trick pony. Do you think the Green Party has done a good enough job of establishing positions on other issues and making those known to the electorate? I think they are. I think they are. You know, it, it's like, Scott, it's like any other party. It grows. You might, a party might start I out. I guess that's with, my you know, point here. I guess that's my point yeah. here, Richard. Have they grown? I mean, are they grown? Because what they're showing right now is they're not ready for prime time. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, you know, agree with you more there. I mean, they're showing that there's the amateur hour, but before this, I, you know, under other leadership, the party was, you know, starting to gain momentum. It was getting, it was getting, I'm going to imagine and remember a new party getting seats in the house. That's a triumph. And they were able to do that, but they're in a situation right now where that could all go by the way. I mean, they could lose everything and they'd have to start from scratch again. But the, this council doesn't seem to care about that. That's what I just mm. don't get. Yeah. They, they, it seems they like they can't decide They can't decide whether they're an environmental movement or actually a political party. You know, at one point, you've got to make that jump. Um, let's talk a, about uh, the NDP. Are they slated to gain the most from this? Although, let's be honest, there's, there's only a couple of seats there we're talking about. But Jagmeet Singh, his popularity uh, rising above his party now. Uh, your thoughts on what the NDP could do this election? It's a flash, a flash in the pan. Hmm. I've, it's, you know, with my 43 years in journalism, I've seen this happen time and time again. Well, we saw it in the last election. election with both the Greens and the NDP. Yeah, he, I mean, he's, he may be he may be a popular guy right now, but that means diddly when for the party. You know, he could be the nicest guy in the world, and if people don't support his party, what's it mean? I mean, you have to have a strong leader, and you have to have you have to have a leader with with public support. But his party doesn't match his support, and that's what yeah. you need. 
and, and, and even the NDP, they, they always go up, tick up a bit prior to the election. Yeah. Election time comes down. And, and then the liberals move in and skim. Uh, yeah, the liberals yeah. seem to move in and skim it all off. Dealer, so what? Dealer seats. Yeah. So what does the NDP have to do? Because again, they were disappointed in their uh, outcome in the last election. Let's be honest. So what do they need to do to take advantage of all of this? Well, they got to. They got to. First of all, they got to show that they're ready for prime time. That they're ready to govern in, in a in a sensible fashion and you know and and do things that canadians are looking for canadians want and often canadians just want you to mind the store don't do anything crazy don't do anything off the wall you know look after canadians look after the elderly look after you know uh, young parents that kind of thing but they they're always afraid the voters are afraid that the NDP, and I don't agree with this, quite frankly, but that this is a that's certainly a thought out there. They're afraid that the NDP would get in power and just go nuts. Yeah. They they would bring in every kind of social social program that you can imagine, and that 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 you know that makes people wary because yeah. they say, well, why, you know, why would you do all these things? We just want you to just mind the store. And I don't think, and the NDP has got a reputation, and we saw it in Ontario, for coming in and spending a gob of money, as if the Liberals haven't, but and bringing in all brand new programs that you know appease everybody. And when you're in government, you can't appease anybody, everybody. Mm. And and I'm afraid that's what the NDP would. The NDP will argue with me that the. Uh, that you know they're ready for prime time and, and they'll govern just as well as anybody else. Well, maybe they will, but they haven't shown that. They're a good uh, opposition party. The Liberals obviously very strong in the polls right now, which is obviously why the, they're looking towards uh, an election of some sort or a triggering election uh, come the fall and such. Could the NDP split the Liberal vote here? Are they that strong? No, I don't think so. Uh, they they may they may eat somewhat into the uh, into the uh, liberal support, but it, it won't be enough to make a difference. It just is it's not there. And you know and 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 things you know a, a good guy. And I think it you know with a few more years under a couple more years under his belt, maybe maybe he can do it. But I don't think it's there yet by any stretch. Do you think he'd have more success as a liberal? Um, well, <laughs> you remember Bob Ray was a one, was right, you know, right leader, wrong yeah. party. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, maybe so maybe, maybe he's in the wrong party, but I mean, he's, he, he, he says all the right things and he feels mm-hmm. all the right things. So yeah. if he sticks with this, if he sticks with the party, gets more experience and, and shows and shows that he's got, you know, the gravitas to become a, a leader, yeah, maybe it might do it. But I don't think him or the party is there yet. But that's not to say that they won't be there. Richard Brennan with us, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill. Richard, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Enjoy the holiday, and thanks for taking the time. We appreciate that. No problem. Thanks again. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.